Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Inside OSU podcast. I'm Molly Chagrut. Today, we're going back to the archives, and our guest is someone who really made listening to this podcast possible. I mean, there really wouldn't be a podcast if there was no iPod, right? Steve Wozniak, he's one of the co-founders of Apple. He helped build the first ever Apple computer. And whether you like it or not, Apple revolutionized personal technology. They're the reason we have iPhones and iPods, tablets, smartwatches, and who knows what's next. He sat down with Burns Hargis and talked about the history of Apple, the first ever personal computer, artificial intelligence, and the importance of putting your ideas into action. So here's the interview with Steve Wozniak. IBM had a formula for cranking in a lot of money. Those IBM 360s was a beautiful architecture, and the 370, I admired it and learned so much on those machines, and I toured around wherever I could and walked among the, the rooms full of machines and tape drives and everything, and just thought, wow, this is an incredible machine. <laughs> you know. But then at the, at the hobbyist level, we needed something smaller, and it was very difficult for companies like IBM and the other big computer companies, digital equipment, Hewlett Packard and others, very difficult for them to see that there would be big money in these small machines because the small machines couldn't do what the big ones did. You couldn't do a company's financial stuff, you know, like which gave IBM its start. No. Right. So uh, how old were you when all this was going on? Were you, were you oh, still gosh. in college? Or? Uh, around, yeah, yeah, this was a big, big one year, 1975. I was past, past three years of college because I was working for Hewlett Packard as an engineer designing the handheld calculators the hottest product of the time. Yeah. So, and I, I, was, I was so excelled in so many ways in, in designs. I was designing products for people all over the country just on my own time or just for myself for fun. And then 75 came along and I heard about a little club starting up and I had no idea what it was about. I thought, I'll just go and show off my engineering talent and I'll pass out designs that I've done for little home TV terminals. And then I found out about Altair and it had been a on a cover of a magazine, it was a kit of parts. Well, I grew up building kits of parts. Ham radio operator in sixth grade, you had to assemble everything, bolt it in place, solder the wires, hook up plug-in tubes. The kernel that uh, grew into what it is today was you needed something smaller to work on as a hobby. I mean, you really, did you, you, you really didn't see a business at that time, did you? At first, um, all the big companies saw a hobby. Those of us who spoke about it wanted to feel like young people with something new. This is a revolution coming. And that's how we spoke in our club. And we had academicians like yourself. We had professors from Stanford, professors from Berkeley coming to our club and telling us how people were going to change, how life was going to change, society was going to change when we all had our own computers. And we had the wrong visions. But by encouraging, giving us the motivation to build these things, eventually some killer apps came along and they discovered uses they could do that the mainframes couldn't. So I guess everybody's waiting for me to ask you, uh, how did you start Apple? How did you and Steve Jobs get together and okay. all that happen? Uh, it's a strange story. It's a lot different than most people know. Um, probably get a lot of it out of my book, but I had build, been building project after project after project in my life going up towards Apple. And for five years, Steve Jobs had been coming into town, seeing something I had, turning it into money. A few hundred bucks for each of us because like he had zero money. Like, what was the early? Well, the uh, earliest one was a little blue box in college days. Could make put tones into an American phone and make free phone calls anywhere in the world. And Steve said we should sell it. So he was the salesperson because he needed money. Um, the next one was I designed a pong, my version of a pong game. 
I didn't invent the game, but I did it in 28 little $1 chips, and Steve ran down to Atari and impressed them with it. And I think they thought he designed it or something. When, when did the aha moment of, uh, okay. uh, we got something years, here. For five years, we're, I'm building stuff. Well, Steve's out of town. He's up in Oregon. He's on a commune. So he didn't know about the computer club. He didn't know. I sat down at the computer club and said, whoa, I'm going to modify my terminal and add a microprocessor and make it a computer of its own. And that, was, and that would become the Apple One, but Steve didn't know it existed. So I passed out my schematics for free because other people in the club wanted to help the revolution. And I wanted to be a part of it. So I gave them all my schematics for free. And to this day, Apple doesn't own the design of the Apple One. Is that <laughs> it's right? It's public domain. Yeah. Uh, Steve came into town. Then he came into town. And totally the opposite of the movie. It shows him taking me down to a club. I was a hero at the club, showing off my computer every two weeks. I brought him to the club with my TV set and my board and my keyboard. And, and he watched the excitement around me. And after the meeting, he said, we should start a company. Well, we had been a company for five years, five times. We'd sold my stuff and shared the money. And I did work for other people anyway. So we were just formalizing it. The two of us would have our own little company. And, and it was not to build a computer. It was only to build a piece of the computer because like I mentioned, Steve knew parts. So he knew how much money we had, zero. Zero checking, zero savings, <laughs> zero rich relatives. So what we would do is make a PC board for $20 and sell it for 40. And if we sold 50 of them, we could make money. He was the business thinking. And uh, the two of us doing that together. So that was the starting idea. It wasn't even to sell real big compute, complete computers. And we knew the Apple II was gonna shake the world like nothing ever before. My engineer friends at Hewlett Packard said it's the best product they'd ever seen. So we knew that was the big one. And the Apple One was interim. We just what, sort of what sell year it. was that? 1976. Wow. This was during 1976. And the problem is the Apple II was so incredible. That was the time you needed money for a real company. Then we knew it was going to be a big, big market. And by the way, this one product was already in existence before we started the real company, Apple Computer, the, the corporation. And that product was all the only successful product that we had making money for the first 10 years of Apple. Here's a learning moment, I think, that I've read you have said, and I want to ask you about it. You say you were the engineer. You, as I understand it, you said, you know, a lot of people can have ideas, but you need to bring the engineers in as soon as possible. Well, that's actually a credit to Steve Jobs and starting a company like Apple, which is you can, a lot of people can have great ideas. Here's how the world could turn. Here's how the world could turn. I was around a lot of them in the Homebrew Computer Club talking about what was going to come. I travel the world now and I meet young people saying, oh, why don't they do an app on the phone that works this way? Or let, let Facebook tell you whenever your friends are near, you know, a lot of ideas you'll hear long before they happen. They are good ideas. They are going to happen. But it's the, the people who actually go to work, pay money, hire engineers, and build a working model of it and start selling it. That it really, that really get noticed, that get the credit. They did the important step. Somebody thinks, I had the idea 10 years before them. Well, yeah, but you didn't act on it. <laughs> what do you think about the, uh, what do you think about the Apple Watch? The Apple Watch, I'm gonna try it. I'm gonna try it. You know what? I think of it like a song. If I, you can tell me everything in the world about a song, and I can't tell you whether I like it or I hate it until I hear it. So I'm going to try the watch and see if it enhances my life, if it adds something to my life. I look for, I don't want to live the same life I had before a product. If I buy a new product, does it really change my life much? Or if it gives me the same life a different way, I'll move on. The new frontier of things like artificial intelligence and all that, do you see, see that as a, as a possibility? Um, not only a possibility, my entire life I have been watching it, that a computer could never equal the mind and I almost got my degree in psychology. I studied the mind very deeply and cognitive development and all that. 
We don't know a thing about how the mind is wired. And we're trying to make minds out of computers. And all of a sudden, we're getting so close that you ask deep questions to, to uh, Google. And you get all these answers back. And you now speak into your phone and you ask questions you'd look up in the encyclopedia before. And you get some answers back very quickly, but it's like a friend. Are these things becoming, will they someday be a friend? They do kind not like have, the movie that, uh, but they, they don't, they aren't sentient. They don't think for themselves. They obey instructions they've been told, but, and there are some good learning examples coming and that's scary too, but they're getting more and more. Are they gonna develop a personality? Are they gonna look at your face and care about you? Care about your family so much, really the same thing that we call feelings. Are they gonna have that? Oh, we don't know the formula for feelings but I, we might get it by accident because we got the Google side of the brain and we got that by accident. I know that you have, uh, you of course talk uh, with great pride, understandably, uh, justifiably as an engineer, but you also were a teacher, a fifth grade teacher, as I understand it. Yeah. Uh, you know, education, certainly higher education, but I think common education as well, uh, have, have not really responded to, the, uh, to productivity advances. It's still pretty much organized the way it's always been organized. One of the dreams of the Homebrew Computer Club and one of the reasons I built the computer was one of the things it was going to enhance was education. Productivity, we were going to learn, kids were going to come out so much smarter than they ever had before. We put all these great computers in the schools and the students are coming out about the same level of what we call intelligence or what a, a school calls intelligence. So it didn't have that big effect and I'm a little disappointed. And I look, there must be something in the future, and I can't, I don't want to pick the same things anyone else would pick. What has never happened that might lead to a different future for education to find out if it is possible for students to come out learning more? And less, I, it's less that I want them to be more capable coming out of school, more that I want the dropouts not to drop out, that I want n nobody to be left behind. And that gets down to entirely different types of schooling, and a computer is a low-cost teacher, one-on-one -on -one education. Can't, isn't, hasn't happened yet. We have all the curriculum online, but it just isn't happening, doesn't work well. You need that little human touch. So if, personals, if computers ever got a conscious and they loved you and cared about you and was your best friend, knew your heart and soul better than your human friends, maybe that would be the guy that you trust. And every student could then, like, like in the university, you pick a major and you tend to go in a direction you're interested in and study it deeply, deeply, deeply in that one direction. Maybe earlier, maybe high school or middle school ages, students could pick the direction that they've come to like. I like mathematics, I like science, I like writing, I like literature, I like poetry, and go off and just focus, focus more on their own directions, and don't worry about if you go, f if you love it so much, you can go fast, and if you hate it, you can go slow. There are a lot of people who believe that education uh, does a beautiful job of just kind of sucking the last drop of creativity out of a lot of students. I kind of do. I kind of do, but it, it, it's still, it's only one factor that, it's only one factor that just, that sort of fights creativity. You, every, you have to in life. You have one teacher with 30 students, you can't let them each explore everything they want to independently because they're all so different. So you have to have tight rules. The behavior is the same for everybody and the, the pages in the book they are reading every week is the same for everyone. Well, now that we have... Yeah. Now and you get called intelligent if you have the same answer right. as everybody else and not your own. Exactly. And, and that's our definition of intelligence and I feel that that's wrong, yeah. So, so given that, how do we use technology to not only improve the product but also the productivity so we can afford it? 
That's good. I wish I had the answer. I mean, everybody's in the world is trying every single way to use the technology. Um, it's becoming a part of our life. It's very difficult to understand how it gets used and implemented into um, existing institutions, including schools. Teachers are a little bit, they're not like super bright on this stuff compared to students nowadays. You watch all the kids and they can do everything in the world with a new machine and, and it scares the teachers away a little bit. Um, machines that get simple, like today's tablets and iPads especially, those are big advantages because the teacher can understand them and use them as well as the students. Apple has definitely come a long way since it first started. It's already been 12 years since the first iPhone was launched. And now, we use our phones for basically everything. It's how we communicate. It's how we schedule our lives. It's how we get our news and know what's going on in the world. I mean, it's even got a flashlight. Our phones are essentially a necessity. And if they've come this far in 12 years and have already become this big of a part of our lives, only time will tell what's going to happen next. Thanks for listening. I'm Molly Chagru, and we'll see you next time on the Inside OSU Podcast.